Coming up, today's guest is the VP of Marketing for the highly popular 8Fit app, and he shares how to build a UA strategy optimized for high LTV subscribers. Also, you'll discover why performance marketing is not working as well these days and conversion rate optimization for new subscribers. All that and so much more. The most action-packed content from the top mobile experts. This is the App Masters Podcast with Steve P. Young. From Apple features to ASO to influencer marketing, you will learn all the tools and tactics to make it in the app space. Learn more at appmastersacademy.com. Calculate your app's lifetime value and learn how you can exponentially scale your growth. Pollen.vc is the best way to manage cash flow and invest in your app's growth. Learn more at pollen.vc. What is up, App Nation? It is Steve P. Young, founder of AppMasters.com, the place, the podcast, the YouTube channel that you go when you want action-packed content in the app business. And today, super excited. We got to connect on LinkedIn. I was like, dude, you have to come on, please. I'm super excited that we're able to make it happen so quickly because he runs marketing for one of the biggest apps out there, 8Fit. And so when I saw it, I was like, dude, I got to talk to this guy. So we're going to talk all about user acquisition, what's working, what's not subscriptions and all that other jazz and his personal history because it's very interesting to me that we got to talk before we hit record. But let me introduce the guest. His name is Salo Marti. He is the VP of marketing at 8Fit. Go check him out, 8Fit.com or in the app stores as well. Salo, welcome to the show. Pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. All right. I'm going to do something different. I do love the backstory. So you Lived in Minnesota for eight years. Tell me a little bit about this so the audience understands where you're coming from because it's so awesome, sure. in my opinion. Sure, sure. Uh, happy to do so. So basically, uh, I'm Brazilian. I grew up in Brazil, but then when I was eight, my dad got uh, transferred. He worked for a big uh, multinational company. He got transferred to the United States, took the whole family, my older brother, my younger brother. We all went there. Basically, my... Uh, Education was in the United States. I moved from the south of Brazil to the north of the U.S. So, like, that's almost yeah. as far as you can go. Um, and uh, it was a really interesting mix. I remember that when I arrived in the United States, I spoke zero English. I had had never taken a single class of English. I arrived August thirteenth. September third was my, like my first day of class, and I just got into class and like everyone was talking and speaking English and things like that. And I was like, what the hell is this? Um, so it was really interesting. After that, I came back to Brazil when I was about 15, uh, continued my studies, went to college, did uh, like business, uh, studied business, marketing, all that stuff. Um, none of it very useful. Uh, it, yeah, just telling it like it is. And then basically I uh, started my career in Brazil. Uh, I started in like this big, big, big corporate company in Brazil that's like the biggest computer manufacturer there is. It's called Positivo. It's like the Lenovo of Brazil. Um, and then I hated almost every minute of it, despite doing like the projects I wanted. Like I had really, really free reign, but I didn't really like the co corporate culture, uh, like the politics that had to be played. Um, so I quit and started my own startup that was really, uh, stressful because I kept getting shit from everyone. Like my parents mainly like, what are you doing? You have a beautiful career in front of you and you're giving all that up to go play entrepreneur. 
uh, and uh, it was intriguing. I started my own startup. It was a mobile app uh, equivalent to Poshmark, let's say, nice. uh, in the United States. In Brazil, it was the first one of its kind back in Brazil. We raised some money. We got a lot of traction. Um, me or my founders and I, we had no clue what we were doing. We were too young. I think we were like 22, 23 when we started. And essentially, uh, we navigated that very poorly. It failed miserably. And then we pivoted, launched something different, raised a little more cash. It did a little bit better, sold that, uh, and then eventually just really loved that high of startup world. Mm -hmm. um, and I've been in startups ever since, basically. I think since I was 23, I've been working with startups. So the last, at least the last 10 years. That's awesome, man. Hey, a couple of things. I've always wanted to do a podcast. Like the next one I'm going to do is going to be talking about like the background of an entrepreneur because I'm more fascinated about the mindset. The I had a similar experience. So I came to the States when I was six and I remember the same experience that you had where I was like, what are people saying? And then I remember the teacher asking me like, what's your name and how do you spell it? And I was like, you know, you just made up some stupid name. I was named after the $6 million man. So I was like, Steve, she's like, how do you spell it? And I'm like, what the hell are you saying? You know, these are like moments I, and I was only six, but I still remember the feeling. Yeah. I don't know if you had this, but I grew up like, you, I have friends who, you know, try to speak in different languages. Like, you know, like, Hey, well, they try to speak in my language. But like, I grew up thinking like, I don't want people because I had people had this perception that you probably don't know English. Right. And so for yeah. me, like, I always wanted to make sure I had a very crisp American accent and everything. I mean, did you ever have these type of feelings that I had as well? Uh, what happened with me was I remember very bluntly, there was this uh, um, girl named Megan who it was in my class, friend of mine, and we just got along. She was just a friend. I think I was like eight or nine, like nine years, eight years old, I think, eight years old. It was my first year there, so third grade, eight years old. Um, and I remember that she was just very friendly and she was very nice. And then uh, one day I'm chatting with some friends and I had picked up some English. I was already speaking English and having friends and things like that. And then I mentioned to, to the guys, I was like, oh yeah, uh, there's Megan. She's my girlfriend. And everyone went like apeshit. And I couldn't figure out why. I really did not know why. Because my mind was like, she's a girl. She's my friend. She is my girlfriend. Right. And then like, a while later, like two days later, I remember uh, another friend of mine came up and was like, oh, do you know this person? I forgot his name, but like, do you know this person? I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, he's my, he's my guy friend. I'm like, what do you mean he's your guy friend? I'm like, yeah, he's my boyfriend. He's my guy friend. And I didn't understand because in Portuguese, you have amiga and amigo. So you classify if it's the gender based on, uh, so it's friend, but classified as gender. So I just assumed in English you would do the same right. by adding girl or boy in front. and. I remember that I got teased so badly because of this that I was like, I cannot make these mistakes. Like English will be my first language. And now currently I actually consider English my native language. I think in English, like uh, the, the test is like, if I'm doing hard math in my head, it's in English. So it's, I, I think in English basically. And it's funny because then when I got back to Brazil, the exact opposite happened where it was basically like, I didn't, I had never gone to grammar class and grammar, uh, had, hadn't taken any grammar classes in Portuguese. So my Portuguese was like, okay, but it was a bit broken up. And then I started getting teased and I was like, what the fuck again? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's tough, man. All right. Well, thank you for sharing that. And I, this is a conversation that I, I like to have, but we'll take it. We'll save it for another time and another, another show, but I'd love to have you back on and talk all about this, but let's talk about the mobile side of things. And you've been working for 
8-Bit. And I love the, the app. The, the thing I want to talk about, and we kind of talked about this before we hit record, was like, people are struggling out there with forms marketing. Yeah. So what's been on your mind with this stuff? So I kind of view it as, uh, I think, some of the, the, the companies, mainly the mobile companies, um, and I've seen this trend here in Germany. Um, I noticed this trend partly in the United States, mainly like Silicon Valley, but like I noticed this trend a little bit where it's like performance marketing became this beast where it's like this is the end-all and be-all of marketing. Um, and people forgot that they do marketing. Like they forgot their marketeers, right? So it's like we forgot about brand. We forgot about the importance of um, building a narrative, telling a story, of connecting with customers and all these things. And this to me is a bit mind-blowing because 8Fit grew like crazy. Like it, it spread like wildfire before I joined. So it was before my time. It was like when I joined, it was already huge. Um, and But at the same time, we didn't have that brand recognition that some other companies that are maybe like in the, the mental health space, like the comms and the headspace that have been able to build. And then if you look at what they've done, I mean, Calm, of course, has a very good performance marketing team. Same with Headspace, but they build their brand. Some of it is product-led growth. Some of it is brand-led growth, but they don't rely on one single function of marketing. And I think a lot of companies kind of get into that pitfall and go into this acquisition trap. And currently today in this landscape, it's just getting more and more competitive. You're getting more and more dependent and reliant on your data and your engineering teams. If you don't have great data, great engineering teams assisting marketing and having this growth mindset, you're dead in the water. It's going to be very, very tough to scale. Um, and if you think about it, also, if you're being very realistic in the people that we're targeting, uh, like older people, so we're, we don't target like teenagers, for example, like our app isn't really made for teenagers and things like that. So the consumption, and this is just a general feeling, I don't have data to back this one up, but the consumption I, or the impression I have is that the consumption of like the Facebooks and the Instagram is decreasing. Um, that yes, people still use it. Yes, people are still on it, um, but it's decreasing. And then I remember that people treat performance marketing as if it's, um, uh, or they treat it very analytically. So for example, you'll do like, even if you do a multi-touch attribution type of uh, approach, but most people do a last click approach, especially if they're a subscription-based app. But like, let's say you have your multi-touch approach. You really know the path and the funnels of how people go. I still feel like you need certain channels to be supportive of your Facebook campaigns or of your Instagram campaigns or your Google campaigns because people are okay with clicking through on Facebook and clicking through on Instagram, but they might not be okay clicking through in a regular DSP. It does not mean that uh, it's not worthwhile. So if you look at strictly ROI and you let ROI judge 100% where you put your money, you'll fall into this, this acquisition trap that will basically lead you down to the path where you cannot get out of it because you don't have other supportive channels. Um, that's one of the things that we've been doing very, very uh, heavily, which is we are uh, always looking at how do we grow? How do we maintain our channel mix? How do we grow our channel mix? How do we become less dependent? Uh, it, when I look at 2019, 2020, it's the year of podcasts, right? Um, Dude, I was just going to ask about that. I'm glad yeah. you brought it up. Okay. Yeah, so it's it's the years of podcasts, and basically, like I think podcast advertising is it's big already. It's going to be gigantic. You do have a little bit of an issue with the fact that um, it's hard to track, and anything that's hard to track becomes 
um, something people don't want to spend money on because they've just gotten so used to the point where it's like, I put $5 in, I get $6 out. Like they've just become so used to this approach. Um, even influencer marketing, I think influencers is actually going to make a comeback, not because of the fact that influencers are important or anything like that, just because people are going to be less addicted to the tracking um, and the ROI element of it. They're going to look at more of a blended approach, um, or at least that's my take on it. I think that's what we should do as marketers. But how do you sell that to the team though? Like, cause they're going to look at the metrics. They're going to look at these numbers, be like, this is not working solo. Like this isn't working. This podcast stuff that you harping on, it's not working because the numbers aren't backing up. How do you go about supporting that then? My, so my, my counter argument is always, um, is the other stuff we're doing working? That's the first question I ask. Mm -hmm. So for example, okay, let's take a very, very deep look into our ads elsewhere. Is it working to the point where, yeah, we're getting like payback, one month, two month, three month payback, we're getting like really, really high ROIs. Is, are we at that point? Then yeah, then okay, then I'll pipe down a little bit. We'll decrease the budget in these other side channels and we'll continue rolling, like, but we need to increase. But my argument is it will come to the point where we won't be able to scale this channel. Yeah. It will come to the point where this channel is gonna start just decreasing and eating itself up. Um, when you get to the point where you're spending more than like a million a month, it really, really starts to get hard to scale past your like lookalike audiences that tend to be your best workers. It gets really, really difficult to scale past like your general competition audiences and things like that. So then you start going broad and then you start going broad. And what happens is you start getting worse results. Right. And the worse the results get, then you start comparing, well, hey, look at that. It's actually not as bad as the podcast stuff we were doing. <laughs> uh, so it's like, or it's not as good as the podcast stuff that we were doing. So I, I do think that it's the argument is more about a healthy channel mix. Um, so what I would do is I'd look at my blended CAC and then what I call like my blended attributed CAC. So it's basically, um, if I take all of my paid channels together, what is the CAC just for paid channels? Cause I've had success in the past where, um, I know a lot of people hate Apple search ads, for example, um, because you can't track properly. Um, but to me, it's a really high intent audience. So I had success where we had a lot of like Apple search ads campaigns running, and this was in a previous company, but we had a lot of Apple search ads running and the numbers for that campaign was like terrible. Like the CAC was like 110, excuse me. And our target was like, I think it was 30, 35. Wow. 110? Yeah. <laughs> and, like, and then I had like my, uh, uh, my, peers and my team and my superiors, everyone kind of looking at me and like, this is a really bad decision. Like you're not thinking this through. And then I, and, but I kept saying, look at the overall, overall blended. Our organic keeps growing. However, if I turn down a little bit of our Apple search ads, our organic goes down with it a lot. So people don't sometimes look close enough to their pay to organic ratio because a lot of the pay to organic ratio, some of it is spillover effect and some of it is legit organic, but a lot of it is just misattribution. Yeah. Um, especially in like Apple search ads that most people now are turning on limited ad traffic. So you're getting LATs a lot. It's getting very hard to track properly. People don't want to be tracked. GDPR prevents you from tracking a lot of these people. So it's like, you're getting into this zone where it's like, you can't really trust and rely a hundred percent on that data. So if it says 110, but our blended, the more I spend on Apple search ads, the better our blended gets. That's what I'm looking at. And then they're telling me like, well, what if we stop? 
I said, if we stop, it goes up. Like I can prove it. I can take it down for a week, like take down some numbers, etc. But once you build up trust with your team, you don't need to run these tests. Like let's stop the budget because when you stop the budget, it gets hard to get back on track again. So it's, uh, it's a little bit of this. I think, um, the mindset that you have to have and how you bring that to your team is that you always need to challenge the status quo. If uh, most of the successful marketers that I know, and there's some really, really, really great heavy hitters that I really like and people that I talk to like on a weekly basis and exchange ideas, the biggest success they've seen is from being first movers. Yeah. So it's like, that's not, you can't replicate that. I can't be a first mover on Instagram again. Right. Right. So how do I go into these other channels? Can I be a first mover on TikTok? Can I be a first mover on uh, podcasts uh, in a sense? Because I mean, a lot of people advertise on podcasts already, but like, how do I improve that? How do I get to the point? So I'm, uh, uh, I'm trying to do, and I haven't been successful at this one yet, but this is one of the ones that I really want to try is I want to take influencer to a different level. Um, I don't want influencers to be strictly a pay for play approach. And I don't want influencers to be strictly a, um, uh, almost affiliate push because no influencer wants that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm trying to find like a blend in the middle where I can actually have like brand ambassadors back in the day, you would pay brand ambassadors, like almost a monthly fee to just talk about you. Right now it's gotten to the point where it's so fucking absurd where some influencers are asking for like 500,000, 300,000 for like a few posts on Instagram. And that doesn't really cut it. And then you have like the more savvy marketers that will basically pay a little bit, get the post out and then negotiate a deal to be able to push the, the campaign through the influencers network. Right. And I think that that's smart. And I think that does work. And that's where you're kind of like trying to hack into the system a little bit. But I think if you find the right brand ambassador, you should almost treat that person as almost as if they had equity in the company. Yeah. So like, how do you bring this person in so close to that point? Um, I don't know any uh, specifics on the deals, but like kind of the way that some of the partnerships, like for example, like Headspace has a really awesome partnership with the, with Kevin Love, the NBA player mm-hmm. that I really, I have no clue what that deal looks like. I have absolutely no clue, but I highly doubt that they're paying him every single time he says Headspace. Um, that just wouldn't make sense. And obviously he earns more than 30 million a year in the NBA, like, I don't think he's that concerned about the 50 K he may get for Instagram post. Um, I mean, he probably is, but, um, I think his deal is probably somewhere along the lines of a little bit smarter than just like getting a, a pay for an Instagram post. Um, and because he's passionate about it. So how do you find these people who are passionate about the product that you're building? Um, and again, it goes back to doing traditional marketing, I guess. Like how do you actually find people who want to work with you versus, you kind of begging influencers or things like that. I got a, I got a lot off, off topic because you asked no, one question. It's kind of like dove into a bunch of things, but yeah. you make the best interviews where I don't have to say anything. And I'm like, Oh, I'm shaking my head. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing I want to reference back to is when you talked about building a brand, you know, the, the way I feel about this and feel free to argue and disagree with this. Mm-hmm. Is I feel like sometimes the companies I work with sometimes they're too small to think about brand. I'm like, dude, you're yep. too small. Like you don't have growth. Don't even think about the brand. But then once you reach a certain point, like AFIT has, you need to start thinking about brand. So how do you go about approaching a brand and like, what does a brand even mean? So how do you even build a brand? So here's, here's my, my take on this. I think no one should look at brand 
as if they're too small for it in the sense that you need to build this from the beginning. You won't, it won't resonate with anyone yet and you won't see the impact of it, but it won't be authentic if it doesn't come from the beginning. It's kind of like company culture. If it's not top down in the sense that like your CEO or the like leadership team lives and breathes those company values. And then you hire people that live and breathe those company values. You're not going to have a good company culture. So you, you can't have a CEO who is basically like everyone has to be in the office at eight and like timestamp. And then you put on your, I don't know, career page that says like, Oh, we have remote policy. Like it just won't fly because you're going to attract someone. The person's going to be super upset when they realize that you have a bunch of micromanagers in there and then they're going to leave or they're going to get pissed and you're going to have like demotivated staff. It's similar to the brand. If, if, if you're, if you're trying to build your brand late in the game, let's say, let's, let's say that after you've done a lot of work, it makes it hard for you to actually be trustworthy. So even if you think about like, for example, take one of my favorite rebrands, I got shit on a lot was Airbnb. I love the rebrand from Airbnb. And I remember that it got a ton of like crap from like the press and people talking about it, et cetera. But essentially that rebrand was done beautifully. It was a complete redesign, a rebrand, but they had those values from the, from day one. Like that was from like Brian, that was from like the founders. It was like from day one, they, they lived those values. Of course, I'm not there internally. I have no clue how it is internally, but at least from the external point of view, it felt like the product always had that. I remember that I did it um, and uh, I applied for a position at Airbnb, like, I don't know, like six years ago, maybe, I don't know, a long time ago. Um, I applied for a position and I was like, I love this product. It's amazing. It's great. And then one of the questions the interviewer asked me was, um, have you ever put your room up for, uh, to, to be on Airbnb? Like, do you have a spare room in your house? And did you ever put it up for, for like Airbnb? And I said, I do, but I haven't. And then the question was like, why? And then I said, oh, because I feel a bit like strange about having a stranger in my house, especially when I'm not there. And immediately the interview shifted and I was like, oh, okay. Well, it was great to talk to you. Oh my and I kind of noticed that it was like, of course, why would they want to bring me in? If I'm immediately saying like, I don't believe in what you're doing, despite me right. saying I love it. I don't actually believe in it because I'm afraid of it or whatever. So it's like that, that even in their interview process, they had kind of like their values and things like that. I think if you can carry that across, regardless of you pushing it out into the world and things like that, it's, it's going to be there. It's going to be available. I think there's some great companies that from the get-go have built awesome brands like Casper is one example. Um, and Outdoor Voice is another one that I really like. So it's like, I think you don't have to be huge to start thinking about brand. I think you should start thinking about it from the get-go. Um, of course, you're not going to over-invest in this. You're not going to hire an entire brand team. You're not going to hire like PR agencies and all that stuff when you're still like a 10-person team. But um, you need to think about where do you want this vision to go? Where do you want this mission to go? And how do you take it there? The love that topic. And I, I almost think as a content creator myself, it's easy for me to think about brand, like, cause I can portray it, right? Like exactly. I, it's in my voice, it's in my videos, it's in all everything I do. But for those who aren't like, where do you think they should start with? Is it the messaging? Is it their ads? Like where, what do you think for not non-content creators? And you know, frankly, yeah. most app developers are not like, besides just focusing on the app, like, what do you think they should focus on? 
maybe a shot in the foot considering what I do, but product. Um, I think it's, uh, and to me, I think products and marketing go hand in hand, especially in the startup world. I think product like growth is key. Um, like you can, uh, what's the expression that you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink something like that. I suck at um, these things, dude. <laughs> yeah. Something like that. Uh, yes. the, the premise is that, um, but like essentially it's, you can, um, you can't force people to use your product. So for example, I can sell anything. Yeah. Like, you know, that whole thing about like, yeah, I can sell, uh, ice to an Eskimo and all that crap. Like, okay, great. But once you do, does he just take it and throw it away or does he use it for anything? Right. So it's kind of like, um, if, if your product doesn't resonate from like the beginning. So I think there's tiny little things like, for example, when you build your MVP, when you build your product, um, how do you make elements in there, be it from design perspective, be it from the functionality perspective that showcase who you are? Sometimes it's tiny details, tiny details like what icons you use or what even color scheme that you use, things like that. Like it can be really critical. I think Headspace from the get-go, their product was very, very, very visual despite being an audio app. Yeah. And um, I think it's one of these elements that, uh, I would focus on when you're talking about strictly marketing, I think that, and this is where I'm going to basically go against everything I just said. Um, when it comes to performance marketing, you got to test everything, test on brand, test off brand, test whatever you can, because you need to learn brand cannot be a restriction, uh, for your growth. Brad brand needs to be a tool for growth. Um, so sometimes, and I think people will get caught up in, um, what is ideal and what do we want to push versus what actually resonates? So I think one uh, interesting example that I heard in a, in a meeting recently that, that I had with my head of brand marketing, who is amazing. And uh, in a meeting I had with her and she was telling me, think of it this way. We have uh, the life we portray on Instagram, on Facebook, etc. And then, so Facebook is kind of like our, like imagine that your persona on Facebook is your personal like mission. And then you have your behavior, which is Google. Like what do you <laughs> actually do? What do you actually search for? Like what is your actual behavior, right? So it's kind of like, and, and that approach is very, very real. So it's kind of like, can, if, if I say, so for example, our, our brand mission, which I truly believe in, which is to transform the concept of, uh, fitness from a pursuit of perfection into something that's more uh, body positive, uh, healthy and lasting for people. Um, we want to get away from this whole like body transformation kind of thing. We want to get away from this lose weight for the sake of losing weight and all that crap. Um, we want people to be healthy and happy, et cetera. I truly believe in that mission. However, does that mean that we have to get away from why people may want to use our app? For example, some people want to use our app to like lose belly fat. Mm -hmm. right and they may resonate very much with our mission because i mean who isn't going to resonate with feel better about yourself be healthier be happier right but if the call to action that drives people in is lose belly fat then there's where you need to figure things out it's like are you okay crossing over that line and calling that out which is something that we personally are not 
So we don't want to go down that path, but then it's what do we need to test and find that can equate in performance to that, but still be in our tone of voice, in our way of saying and things like that. So I think that's the constant challenge that you face. Um, I would not tell people that, uh, especially in the performance marketing world, that you should be hamstrung by brand. Brand needs to be a tool that enables you to grow. I love it. Hey, I want to now reference the article that you wrote yep. on mobile masterminds as well. And I'll, I won't go into the, all the details of it. So I'm going to link that up to the show notes, but definitely a worth a read mobilemasterminds.com. But Salo, the, the first point that you talked about was first engagement is so key though. Our first encounter is so key. And yep. you said that your paid ads were actually outperforming from a subscription conversion rate. They're normal organics. Yes. Yeah. So to me, it's kind of like um, our organics, we don't know exactly where they're coming from, right? Like they can be coming from referrals from a friend. Well, that's why they're organic. They can be coming from referrals from a friend. They can be coming from uh, uplift from our campaigns. They can be like spillover effect. They can be coming from just general search and they found our app and never heard of it, never seen anything. Um, so their point of reference for a lot of times might be a complete unknown. Whereas in the ads, they have a first point of reference. They clicked on it because it immediately, whatever it was that was on the ad already resonated with them. So I know that we'll have campaigns that depending on the message will outperform our organic and we'll have campaigns that depending on the message underperform the organic. So we use the organic as a benchmark almost as like, does this resonate with users? Does this help them understand what we do and what they're going to get before they even get to the app store? Um, and I think it's, um, it's, it's a good thing that we outperform our organic in the sense that it means that we're already bringing in people who are likely to convert. And then, uh, because we're either targeting them correctly or because we are showcasing in our ad something that really interests them. Um, so it's, if you can, if you if you have the capabilities in your data to break up the organic between, for example, like referrals or uh, something like that are already your social followers, et cetera, then I would assume that those should perform better. Um, but when we look at like all of our organic, then yeah. I know Matt from Calm, he kind of talked about this. He said, you know, he used ads and kind of like what you're referencing that would improve retention. He found that ads that showed off a little bit about the app would outperform from a retention perspective, any other ads. What have you guys found from AFIT? So uh, one thing that was really interesting was um, we did this test. Um, I don't remember exactly when it was, but recently um, that we were testing like four different types of messages that essentially they're very similar. So they're not that different, but for example, like um, improve your health, uh, improve your shape, uh, feel healthier, and feel leaner. So essentially it was feel versus improve. So kind of trying to understand like, does the person want to feel or do they want to improve? And is it more about their physical, right? So the shape leaner, or is it about health, healthier health, right? You know the winner, Salo? I do know the winner. Okay, and can I guess? Guess, please. Okay. Feel leaner. Feel leaner, no. That okay, was actually, feel leaner. One. 
Yolina was actually worst place. Yeah, it was actually the fourth one. Um, do you want to take a second guess? <laughs> no, well, no, because then it becomes too easy. <laughs> I'm just going to go so, the complete opposite. <laughs> so basically, number one was feel healthier. Oh, which really? Okay. For us, because that's what we want to resonate and, or that's what we want to push. Um, number two, though, was improved shape, which was like, these are were, like when we put them in a scale, these were the two polar opposites that we had. And then the other two in the middle were a little bit like, and then we said, okay, interesting that these are the two like top performers. And then we compared it to weight loss and um, weight loss is, I think it depends in the market, but like it's outperforming, underperforming, but it's like on par. And it's interesting that um, we realized that people who want to feel healthier, it does resonate more with them. It like, I don't think we have the retention metrics in yet to know if we've already improved our retention, but I know that we have more engagement. So it's like, it performs better. It's a better campaign. We're going to get more engagement. It's interesting, but this is the type of ad that burns out faster. So asking people to, uh, like what I like to call is like the shelf life of the ad, the shelf life of this ad is, uh, shorter than for example, lose weight or for example, uh, improve your shape or whatever. The reason is I think that there's just a larger number of people that will click on lose weight that will click on like, Oh, I'm a little bit chubby, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, some of our competition and without going into names, but like some of our competition do some really, really, really aggressive ads that we never want to do. Um, we, from like a brand standpoint, we make that very, very clear. We are not going to do this, but I am certain that it's converting for them because they push it like crazy, but things like where it's like a, a drawing of a, a, a woman, like a female who is, slightly overweight very very sad then all of a sudden the fat drops off her and she smiles like that's really fucking aggressive and it's really negative if you think about it but i'm certain that there's a ton of people who click on it because we're like most people are are uh, from like a psychological standpoint they are they would probably be ashamed to say that they clicked on it but then like in the confines of like their own space and no one's looking, they're like, oh yeah, I kind of need, I need this. I don't need the one that's telling me like, you're going to feel better about yourself. I need the one that's like, cut your fat. Right. And then, um, cause it sounds like it's going to be easier. Um, when in reality it's not like fitness is a journey. Like this is a really key part of our messaging. Fitness is a journey. You're not going to, um, outwork a terrible diet. It's just not going to happen. I know from experience, I have a terrible diet. Um, I eat too much chocolate and like I'm addicted and I work out and try to do like some exercise and things like that. Um, but I know that if I really want to like get back into my personal optimal shape, I need to cut that shit. Like it's not going to be about just working out more. Um, so you're not going to outwork a terrible diet. The other thing is, uh, consistency is key. So if you work out to your max ability once or twice in a week, it's probably going to be worse than working out 20 minutes to a lower capacity, but every single day. Yeah. So, uh, um, like these are some of the things that we talk about a lot, like within our app, it's that changing behavior is key. And we notice that in our ads, you can clearly see like when we're testing this, what resonates and then the entire conversion funnel just completely improves like our, our uh, user to subscriber rate, our 
the engagement in trial, like all these things completely improves depending on the messaging that we used. I so um, I, I, we had an analysis recently, like our user to subscriber rate had dropped and we had run a test that was um, uh, trying to get people away from the free trial um, due to like iOS 13 and the fact that it could like impact trial to convert uh, trial to customer numbers and things like that. We're like, okay, let's run this test, trying to get less people on the trial and get more people to pay up front. And we ran this test and it was really interesting, the results and, and things like that. But the, the, our subscriber rate was dropping a little bit, not too much, but a little bit. And then we went back and it dropped more. So it's almost like, okay, so we ran the test. It was worse than the control. So we released the control again and it was worse than before. <laughs> like, what the hell is happening? Yeah. Uh, and then um, we realized that it was a little bit of our targeting. Our targeting was just the messaging we were using in our targeting was just attracting the wrong people. So it screws up your entire funnel if you're just targeting the wrong people. It's obvious when you say it out loud, but like it's very hard when you have disconnected teams where like performance marketing team is just strictly going like, oh, I need to look at my ROI and I need to look at my CPI. I need to look at like these key metrics and they're not looking further down in the funnel. And then the product team is, in our case, it's literally sitting like upstairs. Like we have a, an office that has, it's an open office, but it's got like two floors despite like it's not like separated. I don't even know how that, it's like a mezzanine floor. Yeah, yeah. Um, and most of the product team or some people from the product team sit upstairs. Some people from the marketing team sit downstairs. Um, and I find it interesting because like sometimes they're not necessarily communicating. Um, when then when we realize this and we're like, oh, okay, we need to fix this. And then now recently it's been such an improvement having the entire team focused on like the right things and really sharing information with each other. Um, but again, like I said, some of these things sound obvious, but for whatever reason they're not done or they're not communicated properly. And then you could just go into this loop of like, I don't know what's happening. You know, the last thing I want to move on to Sala yep. is that the other point is to refine your subscription model. One of my friends, he told me that when he moved, he's got a very popular like design app. When he moved to just the yearly option. So he stopped giving people the option for monthly year. He's like, no, just one yearly. He saw double the conversions, obviously way more revenue. Have you guys done any, when you've done this refinement, like, have you guys done any tests around this? Yes. So I would say that like, a lot of my career is based on tests around this, um, or at least in the last like couple of years. Um, personally, it's my favorite types of tests. Um, like conversion rate optimization to me is one of the most fun things you can spend your time on. Um, and we've run a lot of tests. Um, for AFIT, we're still running tests. So like from a, from a position perspective, like from our company perspective, we wanna give people the choice, whatever plan feels right for them, right? However, that doesn't always end up being the best thing for the company. Right. Um, and um, at 8Fit, we have some uh, tests that are live, but I can mention, so I don't have like clear results from them, but from my previous company, I remember that we had this uh, really, really soft paywall. It was basically like the person comes in and we say like, hey, here's our app. You can pay if you'd like. If not, you can browse for free. Um, and then you browse and then you can listen to a few things. You can play around with it and there's really no reason to convert. And then our conversion rate was super low. And then I was like, no, let's be bullish. Like you come in, you give us your email, you sign up, paywall. 
And then you do like a little fade in of the X after like three or four seconds. Yeah, like yeah. really, really like hard hitting paywall. Our conversion rate skyrocketed. It, it went crazy. So all the people that didn't convert, converted. Um, and it was on a monthly plan. Obviously, we had a big drop off in M- M0 to M1. Like there was a drop off there. But then after that, it stabilized. Um, and we were doing very well with the monthly plan, but I kept pushing, like, we need to launch a yearly plan because of the fact that I do believe that the LTV on the yearly plan will be higher. Like we need to look at, like, if you think about it, the LTV will be higher. If you have a 45, 50%, uh, retention rate on your yearly plan, that's almost like having like, uh, I think it's like 85% on your monthly plan, which is insanely high. Like Netflix has 96 Spotify has, I think, like 96, 97. So unless you're Spotify or Netflix, a monthly plan is really, really difficult. It's difficult to manage. So I said, so I kept pushing. And I remember the company was kind of like afraid that the conversion numbers were going to drop because our CAC was fine. Like everything was fine. Um, we we're seeing payback in three months. Like, but I really thought that we would have higher LTV. And our purchase convert or our conversion rates at that point were like, uh, well, I want to say something along the lines of like 8%. So like user to customer rate. And we did like user to customer rate was about like 8%. Then all of a sudden, everyone was going into shock. It was like, we're going to launch this. It's going to get released and it's going to drop to like 3%. And I'm like, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. And then we launched the yearly plan, which was like half the price of the monthly plan times 12. So we launched the yearly plan. And the conversion rate was completely stable. Like nothing changed. It was still like 8%. But like you said, we just started seeing a lot more cash up front. Um, So I think if you have, uh, there's two ways to think about it. If you have an amazing product that you truly have amazing monthly engagement and retention, yes, drop your price, get more users in and continue that monthly uh, option. Most subscription apps have a big drop off in the first three months. So you're better off, you're better off leveraging your entire year and fighting for that renewal once a year instead of every single month. Um, so I would say that most companies need to leverage yearly plans. Most subscription companies need to leverage yearly plans. That's my personal favorite type of plan um, from a marketer perspective. From a user perspective, I only subscribe to monthly plans. <laughs> That's, That's funny. just me. It's like that Instagram, your whole analogy, Google, exactly. you Google versus what's on Instagram, Facebook. I, I literally, but here's the thing, promotions work, discounts work. Yeah. I literally signed up to um, uh, Calm uh, or I'm, I didn't sign up yet, but I'm going to, I am going to sign up to Calm. Um, and like, I've been given a bunch of discounts. I know people like there and I've been given promotions and all that stuff. I've had free accounts before and all that stuff. And I've never like really used it. And then now it's to the point where I was like, I want to try it a little bit more. Like I, I want to try, I was using Headspace and then I stopped and then I was like, I want to try uh, Calm again and see how it is. And I just thought about it. And then I went on the website, came back and then downloaded the app again, etc. And all of a sudden I got like this, I think it was a pop-up. I don't know where I saw it, but it was like 40% off. And immediately I'm like, now I have to, like, I, I don't have another choice. Like I have to pay for it now. So it's, uh, um, so I, I'm very much, uh, I hope our consumers are not like us because if they are like me, because if they are, then it's completely like mind boggling the decisions that are made. Cause my decisions are completely mind boggling. But, um, 
I think it's, I only sign up to monthly stuff because I know that I'm going to cancel. Yeah. So it's like, and I know my behavior. I know that I'm too lazy to use these things properly. Yeah. So awesome, man. Well, before we hit the big finish, I do want to thank my last, my sponsor, Polin.vc. I'm going to make it quick. Look guys, if you want revenues, your revenues that your hard earned revenues, like Salo said, look, he's done all these tests. You're getting all these yearly subscriptions. Now you want them faster so that you can retarget or you can run these ads, maybe run some podcast advertising. That's what Paul and VC does. All the revenues that you've earned from the app stores and through the ad networks, they're going to give you quicker as an AR finance credit line so that you can reinvest in whatever UA campaign that's working out for you. So if you're interested in learning more, go check them out. It is pollen.vc. Salah, this has been absolutely amazing, but let's go to the big finish. Give us one app we definitely have to check out. Can it be 8Fit? Sure. Well, I prefer well, something else, but yeah. 8Fit right. and? <laughs> okay, so 8Fit and to me, look, my currently my favorite app that's uh, out there that I really, really like that uh, I'm trying out is uh, Reflectly. Reflectly? Yeah. I yeah, think I it's kind of like the Evernote of mental health. If you would consider, uh, what's it called? If you would consider Headspace or Calm the Netflix of mental health, these guys are like the Evernote of it. So it's like a journal system, et cetera. I think it's a really great app. See, that's why I asked for the end because I've never yeah. heard of them. Yeah. It's check out cool. 8-Bit and check out Reflectly. <laughs> I love it. What's a lesson that took you the longest to learn? The lesson that took me the longest to learn? Um, that I'm not always right. Like, honestly, you got to test things. You go with your gut and that's fine, but like, you got to test things. You got to be data-driven. And I think um, some counterintuitive things, like for example, putting a paywall up front and telling people they have to pay for it immediately sounds stupid. It sounds like you're telling people like you're going to lose everyone, but in reality, you're probably going to get more customers. Um, so I think the lesson that took me the longest to learn is that you don't know all the answers. I love it. Well, if you want to feel healthier, the app is called 8Fit. Go check them out. It's in both Android and iOS. I'm sure you guys have heard of them. But 8Fit, and if you want to check out the website, 8Fit.com. Salo, if the audience wants to follow up with you, say thank you for coming on. You want to send them anywhere else? Yeah, I mean, uh, connect with me on, on LinkedIn. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. It's Salo underscore Marty uh, and Instagram at Salo Marty. That's awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I'm so excited that you were, were able to do this and such knowledgeable content. Like I have so much notes on here. So I appreciate you coming awesome. on, man. Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you all for listening. And I'll see you on the next chat. Thanks for listening to the App Masters podcast. For show notes and amazing app marketing content, check out appmasters.co.